You're listening to Along the Narrow Way, a podcast that walks you through books of the Bible verse by verse to help you dig into God's Word so you can walk along the narrow way with Christ more faithfully. Hosted by Pastor Will Russell and co-hosted by Jimmy Miller. Join them as they help us understand the Bible so we can walk more faithfully as disciples of Jesus. Well, y'all, we're in John chapter 12. We've been studying the book of John, the gospel of John. Verse by verse, just seeing how far we get each Wednesday night. Um, Last week, we um, didn't get all the way through. We started through the gospel of John, and we saw Jesus, um, really the triumphal entry is what we looked at more than anything, Jimmy. Where Jesus comes from Bethany into Jerusalem, it's the he's entering into Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. It's the last week of his life. We're all pretty familiar with how the crowds were excited and ushering him in, shouting Hosanna and praising him as the son of David, declaring he's the Messiah. In John, we see something that the other gospels don't show us. We have a big crowd from Bethany coming because they've been there to see Lazarus. Because in chapter 11, we find out Jesus resurrects Lazarus, and there's a big crowd that came out of Jerusalem just to see the spectacle of a guy named Lazarus who was dead and now he's alive. And so you have a big crowd out of Bethany coming, a big crowd out of Jerusalem. You have this giant mass of people coming together, uh, just praising Jesus as the Messiah. We find out that um, the Jewish authorities obviously don't like what's going on, And their plot to kill Jesus expands, whereas in chapter 11, Caiaphas, the high priest, says it's good for one man to die for the entire nation, talking about Jesus. Now in chapter 12, you see the the plot expand, and they say, we got to kill Lazarus. we got to get rid of him. We can't deny the miracle. We can't deny the evidence, but we can kill the evidence and get rid of it. Mm -hmm. So the plot broadens to Lazarus. You have Jesus coming in through the triumphal entry. And that's, we basically just covered that. Um, And so that brings us to uh, verse 20. (laughs) So John chapter 12, verse 20. says, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. When they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So let's pause right there and just kind of dissect that a little bit. So right off the bat, we see Jesus is in Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us that there were some Greeks looking for him. And they came to Philip. Now, it's interesting they come to Philip. I don't think it's... Uh, any particular consequence that they did, but it's interesting because Jimmy Philip, if you go back to the beginning of the Gospel of John, he's the one disciple right off the bat when Jesus says, hey, come follow me, he runs and searches for his friend Nathaniel. And he says, hey, Nathaniel, I've met the Messiah. you got to come see him. And Nathaniel's like, yeah, whatever. 
nothing good's ever come out of Nazareth and all, whatever, you know. But this is Philip who seemed to always have a desire to get people to meet Jesus. Yes. And that's who God brings these Greek folks to. That's right. They find Philip and he in turn approaches Andrew. Hey, Andrew, we got some guys here that want to meet with Jesus. Now, in your mind, picture what's happening. This is the last week of Jesus' life. He's just got into the, the city. It's very likely he may be in the temple. You know there are just throngs of people all around him. He's probably busy teaching. So Andrew and Philip might just not be sure. Should we interrupt him? Should we ask him to step out of his teaching moment? What should we do? We don't know. We're, we're conjecturing here. But nonetheless... Andrew and Philip go tell Jesus. Now, it's interesting that these, these are Greek people, right? Yes. Gentiles. Gentiles. They're Gentiles. But the Bible tells us they were Gentiles who had come to Jerusalem to worship. That's right. So they, they might have been proselytes to Judaism, converts. It could be that they were just some people who had realized our pagan deities just don't cut it, this one God we need to seek out. And they might not have necessarily been converts to Judaism, but they might have just been seeking the one true God. But nonetheless, they're seeking. And they're seeking Jesus. Yes. They want to meet Jesus. Here's some Gentiles who realize their religion's not cutting it, and they know we need to talk to Jesus. That's the point every person in this world needs to get to. That's right. Sooner or later, we all come to the point where we realize what we've been seeking, what we've been trusting in, what we've been chasing after for, familiar, for fulfillment is not going to cut it. We need to seek Jesus. That's right. And the problem is sometimes even after we meet Jesus, we slip back into our old ways and still seek after this, that, or the other to find fulfillment. And every now and then we have to be reminded, no, seek Jesus. So we have a couple of guys here who are seeking Jesus. Now, they tell Jesus, hey, these guys want to talk to you, but we don't have a conclusion. This account is left open-ended. We don't know. Yeah, he just kind of goes into a teaching moment. He goes right into a teaching moment. Now, it's very possible these two guys or three guys or whoever many were in this group around Jesus, it's very possible that they were there hearing what Jesus was saying. Mm -hmm. So they might not have been directly you know, hey, so-and-so, and hey, so-and-so. But it's very possible they're standing there and he begins to speak truth they need to hear. Yes. Or maybe they weren't. The Bible doesn't say. Well, I can take a guess to why maybe that he goes right into a teaching moment. They're all excited and they're coming. We should be excited to go tell people about it, mm -hmm. to go tell people about Jesus and bring them to Jesus. But a lot of these people are coming unsincere. Mm -hmm. They're coming just to see the 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 miracle i guess right just a, a magic show pretty much and you know and, and he goes into the people loving this loving their life you know and I, you know it, and he goes into you must hate your life and that's always been a real strong i always used to have trouble i'm supposed to hate my life mm -hmm. and i always and i and it took me a long time to realize i'm supposed to hate the pleasures of this life mm -hmm. you know that lead to you to sin and stuff and i think that's what he's trying to tell these people who are not seeking me the right way maybe you you know, I know before probably, you just tell them to come to me, maybe you need to sit, maybe you don't, we all need to sit down and have Bible study together and, and seek mm -hmm. Jesus sincerely. Well, time, Discipleship type stuff. time and again, through the book of John, we have seen the masses of people seek Jesus, but with the wrong motivation yes, of heart. Yes. They want to see the spectacle. They want to see the miracle. They want to see the show, but they have no sincere, genuine desire 
to know Jesus. I don't know if he does it in this gospel, but he does ask him, well, what did you come out to see? You know, mm -hmm. did you come out to see this? Did you, mm -hmm. What did you come to see? You know, and nobody ever really answers him. You right. know, and, well, I think of nothing else, the fact that John includes in his gospel this statement about these Greek folks seeking out Jesus, it's, a, it's an allusion to the reality that God's going to open up the gospel yes. to the entire world. The gospel is not going to be contained to Israel. The gospel is not going to be reserved for just the Jewish people. The gospel is going to indeed blossom and, and be for Gentiles and Jew alike. Amen. And so we have a foreshadowing of that. Now, there's also something very interesting in, in, in the statement he makes. His very first line, when Jesus makes this statement, he says, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, time and again through our study of John, we've pointed out something will come up. Uh, for example, Jesus uh, was going to go back into Bethany. The disciples said, You can't go there, Jesus. Remember last time you were there, they wanted to kill you. You can't go. And Jesus said, My hour has not yet come. Mm. So time and again, Jesus is pointing out, the hour has not come. The time has not come. I'm not going to be handed over to sinful men and die. But now, for the very first time in this gospel, he says, the hour has come. He's telling them, my death is imminent. It is here. You're about to see this happen. All that I've been teaching you, all that I've been alluding to, it's about to come to pass. The hour has come. come. And he goes into this statement about wheat, about, about a grain of wheat falling into the ground. Um, he was using a very common agricultural um, illustration here. The people would have understood this example. Mm -hmm. He talks about how a, a grain of wheat is buried in the ground. That, that grain of wheat dies in the ground, but it does so that it can produce a harvest, produce a fruit. Yes. That, that If the grain of seed doesn't go in the ground and die in the ground, it doesn't produce a harvest that's right and he's talking about that and indicating that that grain of wheat from that one single grain a, a, a plant comes up with multiple grains a, a, a big harvest a great harvest and he's saying so will my death be mm. my death is going to produce produce a, a great harvest of salvation God's kingdom is going to see many souls yeah. added to the kingdom, justified before God, because I will lay myself down, be placed in the ground. I will die and be buried to produce a harvest for the kingdom. And in fact, when you look at Revelation 7, 9, the Bible says that there's a great harvest that will come from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. And Jesus is saying, like you put a seed in the ground and it's buried and dies in the ground, yet from that seed springs forth a great harvest. Amen. He's alluding to, I will die. You'll see me put in a tomb. But from my sacrificial death will spring forth a great harvest from every tribe, tongue, language, every group of people in the world. God's going to reconcile the world unto himself. Yes. And so that's what Amen. Jesus is alluding to here. And he's using a very common illustration to help someone understand. And Jimmy, I was thinking about a lot of y'all, even when you go around week to week door knocking, <laughs> you knock on someone's door and you strike up a conversation. You probably don't initiate a conversation necessarily about maybe if you're a premillennialist or post-millennialist or an all-millennialist, you don't go into universalism mm -hmm. or complementarianism. 
you probably use common language over common things to explain a common gospel. Yes. I try to get to know them a little bit something at first, you know, try to dig in and see where, and then try to get an example of that. Well, you know, you're living, you know, here. Mm-hmm. Here's so, what the Bible says, that's you know, right. and everything like that. <laughs> so you use common everyday things yes. to yes. lead them to the truth of Jesus. And oh, that's yes. exactly what Jesus was doing here. He's using a common everyday event mm-hmm. that every one of these people would have understood to explain, you're going to see me placed in the ground, but for my resurrection, you'll see spring forth a great harvest of souls to God's kingdom. I like to use the better butterfly metaphor. Have I yeah. told you that before? Yeah. Did I tell you that one time? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. You, you know, it, it, salvation, resurrection and salvation is in all that, all that Jesus is saying, you can just see it in the butterfly. Mm-hmm. All you got to do is it starts out as a worm, a caterpillar. It can do nothing but crawl along in the earth and all get all mucky, nasty looking. And everybody's all, ooh, don't touch me. But it goes into its pod and it goes through this transformation that God, only God can do because it's his creation. And only he can do this. And it, it all, all its old self melts away and dies and it comes out and it's new and it's fresh and it can do things that it's never done before. Because it obeyed its creator, it perfectly obeys its creator. Mm-hmm. Creator, you know. Now we don't perfectly obey it until Jesus comes in, but that's what happens right there yeah. in, the, in the butterfly thing. God comes in, He creates something new, and it's different. It's perfect. It's beautiful, and it does things it's never thought it could do. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's really neat. And so, so Jesus is the means to make that happen. Yes. And He's explaining that process right here, and you know, you get a glimpse of His deity. Because he knew that after the suffering of the cross, after the victory of the resurrection, that the gospel would spread far beyond Israel and that there would be a great harvest of souls that would come into the Mm -hmm. kingdom. Now let's look at this next phrase Um, here in verse 25. Y'all look at what he says. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So there in verse 25, you have this statement about if you love your life, you're going to lose it. But if you hate your life, well, you're going to keep it and it'll be eternal life. Now, I've always struggled with this part. To make sense of this verse, you have to look at the word life and you have to understand the Greek from which it's translated. There's two Greek words used here, two different Greek words. In fact, one is phusekhe meaning physical life, Mm. earthly life, the physical earthly life in which we dwell. And this is the life spoken of in these first two references where he says when you love your life, when you love your earthly physical life, and then when he says when you hate your life, when you hate your earthly physical life, and it doesn't mean to actually hate, be grudging your life, but it actually means not to prefer. When I don't prefer this earthly life, over the life he can give is what he's saying. Mm -hmm. And so the first Greek word refers to just the physical earthly life. But there at the end of the verse where it says eternal life, that word life is zoe. It's spiritual life. And so there's two different words used here. The end of the verse uses the word that means to be spiritually alive. And so eternal life is spiritual life. To be spiritually alive in Christ. Mm -hmm. To live eternally before him and with him. And so Jesus says, look, If you are so bound up in this earthly life, you prefer it over me, you're going to lose life. It's over for you. Yet, if you will hate it, if you will not prefer this life to the life I can give you, 
If you will not be selfishly consumed with your worldly desires, yet yield to my lordship. If you will forsake the worldly life for the sake of faithfully following Jesus, yielding to his lordship, he says you're going to have Zoe, eternal life, spiritual life, life forever. And so Jesus very plainly is stating to the masses here, I'm going to be put into the ground for a great harvest. And that great harvest is Zoe. It's spiritual life. Through me, you have spiritual life. Through me, you have eternal life. And so he's teaching here, you only have hope in me. You can love the world and the things of the world. You can have the riches of the world. You can have the prosperity of the world. You can have the prominence, the power, the pleasures of the world. You can have the world and yet lose your life and be condemned to eternal death in hell. Or you can yield to that, let it go for faith in Christ. It doesn't mean God's taking it from you. It just means you prefer Christ over that. And you receive Zoe, spiritual life, spiritual. Eternal, eternal life. So he's laying down some truth on them. He keeps on in verse 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So he goes on and he's building upon this. He's okay, listen, give up your self-seeking, self-pleasure, self-indulgent desires, yield the worldly life to receive the life I can give you. And when you receive eternal life, here's what happens. It leads to a life of serving me. That's right. Eternal life is evidenced in the service we have for Jesus. When we place our faith in Christ, we follow him with hearts of service. Amen. And so those who have a salvation experience, but they never come into the church, they never want to be a part of the church, they never get active in ministry, they never study the word, they never have anything to do with the components of Christian life that pursues Christ, you have to wonder, was that salvation truly sincere? Because Jesus says here... I will give you Zoe, I will give you eternal life, and when you have eternal life, that faith will lead to following me with a heart of service. But he says it's not just, it would be enough, it's not just that we love him so much that he saved us and given us eternal life, that would be enough, but Jesus gives two specific promises here for those who faithfully serve him, following him with hearts of service. Firstly, he says this, where Jesus is, we will be also. That's right. Amen. Where Jesus is, we'll be also. He says, where I am, there my servant will be also. If I have a heart of genuine pursuit of Christ, I'm promised that where Jesus is, I will be also. I think that's a two-sided coin. Mm-hmm. I think one side of that is I will experience his presence in my daily life as I commune with him. Yes. I think the other side of that coin is My place in his eternal kingdom is prepared for me. In fact, in John 14, here just a couple of chapters in this book, he's going to say, I have gone or I will go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare that place, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. And so he says here, my faithful servant has a promise. He abides in my presence daily and he has a place with me in eternity. That's right. There's a second promise he makes. He says, if anyone serves me, 
Him my Father will honor. God the Father will honor those who faithfully follow Jesus in service. Amen. God's there. And I'm going to tell you, my friends, there is no human or earthly honor that can compare to the eternal glory of God and the honor He can bring. That's right. And so... Sometimes you look at your life and you think, well, you know, I'm committed to Christ and I'm going to follow him. I'm going to serve him. But my commitment to serving him means I'm going to forego doing this. And I'm going to have to miss that. Or I'm going to sacrifice this. Or I'm going to sacrifice that. But the reality, there is nothing we sacrifice or give up that can compare to the honor God says he'll bestow upon us That's when right. we faithfully pursue and serve Christ. I think Paul understood that. Oh, absolutely. I think he really understood this teaching because... You know, he wanted to go to heaven and everything like that, mm -hmm. but he knows he needs to be here for the benefit of others. And I think that's, that's why Christ said. leaves us here and doesn't take us straight to mm -hmm. heaven. It's for the benefit of the lost. That's I right. Mean, the Holy Spirit's the benefit for the Christian. The mm -hmm. drawing power of the Holy Spirit, I think, is done through us mm -hmm. to go and tell the world. And that's how the Holy Spirit draws people to himself. I think we're a big part of that. Well, I think so. I think God has chosen to use us as vessels you know. through which his spirit can draw people yeah. To a saving knowledge of Christ. And, and he'll honor us. You know, if we're truly Christian, you know, Paul's best example, because he, he, he gave up all of his old life, mm -hmm. a prominent life. That's right. Very prominent. And in and, and Roman citizenship, really gave it up. I mean, he used it a couple of times, but he went to prison and, and mm -hmm. got killed by the Romans. Come on. Right. I mean, they killed one of their own citizens. Mm -hmm. All right. So, it, it, but he, he stayed faithful. You know, and, and God honored him. And, and he's honored throughout the Bible as well. Well, sure. Right, most of them have the new, most of the New Testament right. and stuff like that. See how, mm -hmm. But if you're a faithful Christian, you're going to be where the God's work is, mm -hmm. whether it's in a prison or wherever. But right. God, you're going to be where God's at. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> well, um, in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 30, God clearly states that, if we will honor him, he will honor us. Yes. And that's true of God the Son when we, when we do that. And so Jesus here elucidates this reality that his death is going to lead to a great harvest for the kingdom. That great harvest is eternal life that produces faithful servants to his kingdom. And in, a, in that serving capacity, not only are we living out eternal life, but we're rewarded in that we enjoy his presence. We have a secured place in heaven. And God the Father honors us on top of all that. Amen. So it's a really neat thing, but he keeps going on. Oh. The, the mood's going to kind of shift now, yes, though. This is... The mood's going to shift here in verse 27. He says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And so the mood shifts. You're fixing to get a glimpse into kind of that humanity of Christ. Yes. You, you know, know, and it just shows his heart, too. And, I mm -hmm. mean, he's not even willing. He's willing to let sin, you know, just, mm -hmm. deal, you know, he's willing to deal with all the sin of the world. You know? That's right. Well, that's what this really amounts to. He's troubled. He knows the cross is imminent. He knows that the sin of the world is about to be placed on him. He's troubled and he's grieved. He's agonizing over the divine judgment of sin that he knows he's going to experience. He knows what's coming. He very clearly knows. You can jump to the Garden of Gethsemane and you see a parallel to this. He knows what's coming. He, he understands God's redemptive plan, what it's going to require to purchase forgiveness. 
He was not, he, Jesus was not disconnected from the weight of this burden. No. He, he fully understood and felt the pain of this. People sometimes think, well, Jesus was God, you know, and so, yeah, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, he went to the cross. He didn't feel it. I mean, he's God. That's not at all it. Emotionally, he felt the stress. Mm -hmm. Mentally, he anguished. Physically, he felt the pain. And here, his soul, his spirit, he's grieved, he's tormented, knowing that he is perfect, pure, divine God who's forfeited that, come in human form, and now the filth of sin is about to cover him. Yeah. Separated from God the Father, the triune God being separated in and of itself, we have no way in our finite minds to understand how that works. Yet Jesus knew it was coming, and he was troubled in that. He, uh, asks, this, he asks this rhetorical question. Why should I, what, what should I say then? You know, uh, should I say, well, God, take it away. Father, deliver me from it. And he, didn't, he wasn't being serious. That's just rhetorical. He gave the answer, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's right. For this purpose I came. I have entered this world for one purpose, and this is it. You know, that's what's interesting is here is this one time one of the disciples don't even interject. Oh, you shouldn't let none of this happen to you or anything like that and everything like that. He, that's a good point. <laughs> they just and, let him go ahead and say it. <laughs> time and again, we've seen them do that. Yeah. Time and again, we've seen them, oh, now, Master, you don't mean that, or no. it can't be that way. I mean, time and again, we've seen that. He's had to, he's had to look at Peter and say, get thee behind me, Satan. Yeah. Yet here... In the magnitude of this moment, you're right, Jimmy. No one disputes. No one offers <laughs> objection. He's, he's indicating the, the magnitude of this. And he knows this is absolutely God's plan. Back in John 4, verse 34, we read that Jesus told his disciples, listen, my food, my food is to do the will of the Father and to finish his work. He knew that's why he was here. What's amazing to me, he's, he's not even willing to save himself. No, this. he's mm -hmm. not will. He, he he's willing to save us from it, That's not right. himself. That's a good point. If you if you jump ahead and you look at at the betrayal of Jesus, where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas is leading the betrayers, you'll remember that Peter cuts off mm -hmm. the ear of the servant of, of the chief priest and all. And you remember Jesus rebukes Peter and he makes a statement. He says, "Do you not know?" that I could call down 12 legions of angels and stop this. You're right. He could have stopped it at any point. But because his love for us is so great, he wouldn't stop it. And he, he, he knew the plan. And he was going to abide in the plan. In John 6, 38, Jesus told his disciples he left heaven to fulfill the Father's will. And when we get over to John 18, he's going to say, For this cause I have come. To offer myself as a sacrifice. If you look at Philippians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages, verses 5 through 8, it clearly states, this is God. It's God who thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He let go of that. He forfeited that glory to come into this earth and to take on human form. And being found in human form, he became like a bondservant. That's right. Being, being like a bondservant, he became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. He knew what he was doing. He knew what was about to come. And his soul is grieved in the moment knowing it's imminent. This is about to speed up. And it's going to happen. And he did that for our benefit. That's right. You know, I've heard some people arrogantly say that God has to have us worship him and everything like that. It's his benefit that, we, that he did all this so he could have people worship him. I, 
Like, where do you get that? Mm-hmm. Where do you lose that he did this for your benefit? It's, it's, Not his. Mm-hmm. God didn't need nobody. <laughs> he, you're right. You're right. He, so you're right. So in this moment, Jesus knows he's troubled. He has us on his mind. And notice how he sums up his statement. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. What a statement. Let me, let me just read that whole section right there. He finishes by saying, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it, they said, it is as if it has thundered. Or others said, an angel has spoken to him. That's Jesus had an intent. That intent was to bring glory to God the Father. Mm-hmm. He came for the purpose of bearing man's sins and providing humanity's salvation and in doing so to glorify the Father. Even through his death, he was focused on glorifying the Father. He wasn't consumed with, I didn't get to do this, or my bank account's there, or I'm frustrated with the kids, or this. He was, he was focused on, I want to bring glory to God the Father. And even in death, he was looking to glorify the Father. What do you think when he says, I will glorify it again? What does he mean? Here's what I think he's referring to. I think there's, there's probably multiple takes on this, quite honestly. Oh, yeah. He says, I have glorified it. I think, I think practically speaking, he's saying, God the Son, Jesus, in your life, I have glorified my name. Mm-hmm. Through your teachings, through your miracles, through the life you've lived, the example you said, I have glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. Because on the third day, the ground's going to shake and the stone's going to roll, and you're going to step That's out right. victorious, and I will be glorified again. And, it, and, it, and, and Jesus is gaining that glory back that he had from the beginning. That's right. That's right. And, of course, ultimately, there's going to be supreme glory when he establishes his kingdom yeah. permanently. And so God responds to the Son. This is the third time in the book of John, by the way, God's audible voice has spoken. Yes. God the Father audibly speaks. It's the first time was at Jesus' baptism. The second time was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And now in this moment, God the Father audibly speaks. And Jesus hears. He knows. He understands. Those standing around heard but didn't understand. That's right. Some thought it was thunder. Some pieced together, well, it's some type of communication. It must be angels or something. But they didn't grasp the words. They, they didn't have a full understanding. They heard it but couldn't piece together what it was. Here in this response, God is giving his affirmation, his approval of Jesus, that Jesus is abiding in his will, that Jesus is bringing glory to the cause and the kingdom of Christ. And and it's just kind of affirmation. And the reality that so many people heard it but didn't comprehend it, it should serve as a reminder to us, that it's not until the redemptive work of Christ is applied to our lives that any of us can understand God, commune with him, or communicate with him. That's right. These people heard it, but they couldn't interact with him. That's right. But after the resurrection, upon repentance and faith in Christ, now people have the opportunity to hear him, understand him, and interact with God himself. And so we get a glimpse here of a change that's going to happen. Yes. And so this audible response, honestly, was the, for the benefit, not really of Jesus, I don't think, but for the benefit of the disciples. Um, I think the disciples needed to be reassured. Yeah. They're fixing to see this, this master, this rabbi, 
the Lord they have followed for three years, they're fixing to see him hanging on the cross. They're going to be scattered. They're at the Garden of Gethsemane. They're all going to run away. Peter's going to be the only one that stays close, and then he's going to deny him three times. I think God was speaking not for the benefit of God the Son, but for the disciples so that they could realize, now wait a minute, when they thought back, when they remembered back, they could remember, now wait, God the Father confirmed Jesus. That's right. His death on the cross was not because he was outside of the Father's will. His death on the cross was not because he did something he shouldn't have done. It was all part of God's redemptive will. It's just affirming Jesus as the beloved Son of God, and I think it's to bolden and strengthen, to encourage the disciples more than anything. Um, so, let's keep pressing on because we need to finish a section and get to a stopping point, but we're getting close to our time. Let me pick up here um, verse 30. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying what death he would die. And the people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So here Jesus actually says, look, this happened for your benefit, just kind of what we said. <laughs> but he talks about there in verse 31, judgment is about to come. The judgment of this world is at hand. The ruler of this world is going to be cast out. When Jesus uses these terms, what we see is that the death and resurrection of Jesus was about to usher in the judgment of the world. The world, that is the, the uh, satanic world system, is about, to, is about to be under judgment. That's right. Now, the judgment isn't going to be issued until later on. That's right. But the judgment is cast. The period is put. There's no changing the ruler of the world, that's Satan. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, they forfeited dominion. Right. They handed it over to Satan. Time and again, the scripture refers to Satan as the ruler of the world, the principal of the air, the god of this age, on and on and on. Oh, yeah. This is Satan. Satan's going to be cast out. Now, once again, not immediately. That's right. But the end is written for him. When Jesus stepped out of that tomb, the judgment of Satan was sealed. Yep. His dominion is limited. It is coming to an end. In fact, in Revelation 20, 10, you read that he and his minions will be cast into everlasting punishment. It's called the lake of fire. That fate was sealed in the moment Jesus stepped out of the tomb, and that's what he's referring to here. The hour's come. It's about to happen. And when this happens, judgment comes upon the world and the ruler of this world. And the people, the people are going to, get a little sideways with him over a comment he makes because he's going to indicate how he's going to die he says if i'm lifted up i'll draw all men, all men to me everyone knew what he's talking about he's talking about crucifixion everyone knew he was saying look i'm going to be hung on a cross i'm going to be crucified i'm going to be lifted up as to sacrificial payment for sin and in doing that i will draw all men to myself now i don't think that means all people in the world will be saved no. i think what that means is Salvation is provided for all people who would receive, That's right. who will come repentance and faith before him. 
He'll draw all people. He's willing to have all people. Mm -hmm. He's died for all people. He's redeemed all people who will come to him in faith. That's right. But it's only through faith in the crucified and resurrected Christ, the Savior, that sins can be forgiven and eternal Amen. life can be imparted. Amen. But the people here won't accept it. See, they have a misconception of the Messiah. They think the Messiah is coming to just usher in a new world order where the Jews rule. That's right. The enemies of Israel are defeated. The Messiah will, will rule everything. And they even quote scripture. Look at what they say. The people answered him, we have heard from the law. They're talking about the law of Moses and the writing of the prophets. They're going to the Old Testament. So now wait, Jesus. The Old Testament says the Messiah will not die. The Old Testament says the Messiah is going to conquer everybody. The Old Testament teaches us the Son of Man will defeat all of Israel's enemies and establish Israel's kingdom forever. <laughs> but they were greatly misinterpreting the Old Testament. They were picking and choosing because the Old Testament does reference the eternal kingdom. The Old Testament does reference the Messiah and how he will reign. But they had to overlook passages like Daniel 9, 25 and 26, Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, Isaiah 52, 13 through, all the way through chapter 53, 12, Isaiah 56, Psalm 41, 9, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, 21, and I just quit writing because I got tired. The Old Testament time and time and time again says, the Son of Man will die. Yeah, right. He will be crucified. Psalm 22, if you read that, describes the crucifixion John will tell about in his gospel. God told us back in the ages, I'll come into this world to save the world, but to save the world, I'll have to die. That's right. And the people won't accept it. They have this misconception of the Messiah. They want the Messiah on their terms, and they're not going to accept Jesus if they can't have him on their terms. That's right. And so they're not going to have him. They're not going to have him. They had this irreverent mocking question. There in verse 34, they say, you say the Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is this Son of Man? What they're saying is, what kind of Messiah are you talking about? Not a Messiah we want. A Messiah that's going to die? No. You're off base and we don't want that. We don't want a suffering servant. We don't want this suffering servant who's going to offer himself as a sacrifice. We want this conquering king to subdue the world. They would not receive Jesus as he came because he didn't fit their idea. They couldn't have him how they wanted him, so they wouldn't have him. My goodness, if there are not people all around that still have that same mentality. Yeah. I don't want Jesus if I can't have him the way I want him. I'm not going to come to Jesus if I can't come the way I want to come. Yeah. But that's not what the Bible dictates. That's not God's plan. That's not how it works. You come to Jesus as Jesus is. You get to come how you are. You don't have to clean up a thing. You don't have to change a thing. Right. You just come with a repentant heart expressing faith but you come on his terms that's right that he is the one and only savior that's that it's right. only through his death and resurrection we have hope but ironically what these people missed was that jesus is going to come and he is going to establish eternal kingdom he is going to rule and reign in peace revelation eleven fifteen says he's going to step in and he'll fix it all and he will rule forever amen he was the right messiah but they wouldn't accept him on their terms that's right 
So we're going to stop right there because we went over our time limit as it is. And so if you're tuning in on the podcast, jump back in with us next week and we will pick back up where we left off. And we appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Along the Narrow Way, hosted by Pastor Will Russell and co-hosted by Jimmy Miller. If you haven't done so, subscribe to the podcast so you can get updates on new episodes. Thank you for listening, and remember to stay faithful to walk along the narrow way with Jesus.